Beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 56. And we're going to read tonight Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9 through chapter 57, verse 13, because they're really a unit. They're a unit that, um, that is particularly um, challenging in light of what we read last week. So let's stand together. Let's, let's, let's look at this word together. We'll read it, and then we'll dig in together um, in this text tonight. So this is the word of the living God. Isaiah writes, beginning in verse 9, chapter 56, All you beasts of the field, come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs that cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant. For yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength. And so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them, all, take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, As we come to this text tonight, I pray that you would give to us um, hearts to understand and minds to comprehend, Father, the truth that you are giving to us through the pen of Isaiah. Father, your word is our life. It is our, it, it is absolute truth with a capital T. Everything that we can trust, everything that is solid, everything upon which we can depend is found in your word. And that's because you are the only one who is a solid foundation for our souls. You're the only one, Lord God, who can uphold us 
and preserve us and strengthen us in this present evil age. God, thank you that you have poured your grace out upon us abundantly. That, Father, you have sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That, Lord God, you have pursued us by your Holy Spirit and made dead, dead souls to live and, Father, hardened hearts to believe. Lord, you have given us life in Christ. You have given us the gift of your Holy Spirit. You have sealed us unto yourself. And Lord, we thank you for that. Help us now to be both challenged and encouraged by the text that we look at tonight. I pray that you would indeed empty me of myself and fill me with the Holy Spirit. Grant me your unction so that the words that I would speak would be pleasing in your sight and would be beneficial for the souls of everybody here. Lord, we we turn to you. We turn to you with a longing desire to hear you speak to our souls. So we pray that you'll do it. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm just going to tell you, this is a tough text, man. This is a rough one. You know, the text that we're looking at tonight, it sort of comes as like a shock to our system, doesn't it? Especially in light of the eight verses that we we looked at last week, right? Last week, we, we read of the marks of the faithful. We read of the, the vast scope of God's grace. We read about the great purpose of God to gather to himself through his servant, our Lord Jesus Christ, this great host of worshipers, right? A, a host of white-hot worshipers from what were once rebels. We read of this great hope that, that will be fully realized in God's sovereign might and in his grace, Right? Right? Okay, so, but in this text tonight, we're confronted with the sobering realities of this interim time in which we live, right? For the remnant to which, you know, Isaiah is writing, it's the time between the promise of the coming of the servant and the actual coming of Christ. And for us, it's the time between the Lord's first and his second advent. And the reality in view here is this, is that not every Israelite is of true Israel. That not everyone who claims Christ is actually in Christ. That not all who claim to speak for God are truly called by God. And that not all who claim to be the people of God really are of God. It's a sobering message, but it's really, really important. Here's what we need to get. Here's what we need to understand, beloved. You know, it's just the truth. You see it in our world. False teachers, unfaithful shepherds, apostates and hypocrites... They're going to be a plague and a challenge on God's people until Christ returns, right? Peter, in fact, speaks very pointedly about this in, in his second epistle. There he writes, among other things. I'm just going to read a couple of, of texts. I could read a bunch. But there he says, for instance, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he writes this. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, the Israelites, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then a little bit later down in, in, in verses, the end of verse 13 and verse 14, he says, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. And that's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's a pretty direct 
and powerful statement. And in this text that we're looking at from Isaiah tonight, Isaiah also deals with this issue both powerfully and really graphically. And, and what we're going to see in this text is that it deals, first of all, with unfaithful watchmen slash shepherds, right? Unfaithful men, you know, who are supposed to be leading the people of God. And then second, the consequences of that failed leadership. Then the third thing we're going to see is, the, you know, a, a picture of the false professors themselves. And Isaiah is going to describe the madness of apostasy from, you know, from God using the most revolting images that were available to him. And then the fourth thing that we're going to see, finally, is this description that plainly, you know, identifies the starkly different ends for both the true and the false believer, for, the, for those who are truly God's people and those who are not. So this is an arresting text, and it's meant to inform and to protect the remnant that, you know, was saved from the Babylonian exile, and it's intended to inform and protect the remnant now who has been saved from this present Babylon. And as we're going through this, and there are so many illustrations, I can't possibly talk about them all, but you, you're discerning people. And so the discerning mind is going to be able to see immediately the many parallels to the modern professing church, okay? So let's look at this. Let's, let's get to it, first of all, by looking at God's word about the false watchmen slash shepherds, okay? In fact, we'll just read the whole thing. And then I'll bring some things out of the text that we need to see, all right? So under divine inspiration, Isaiah writes, starting in verse 9, chapter 56, All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Now here's what Isaiah does here. In these few verses, he talks about the false spiritual leaders that had been and that would arise in Israel. And they also say the modern false church. And he does so by identifying, notice here, the chief responsibilities of faithful spiritual leadership. That of being a watchman and of being a shepherd, okay? So let me just talk about that for a moment. A watchman, you know, a, as a watchman, you know, the spiritual leader was to be alert and to guard from spiritual dangers that would threaten God's people from the outside, right? A watchman had, he stood on the walls looking outwardly, right? Seeing what were the dangers on the horizon and then guarding the people from them. Right? With me? And then a shepherd, his job is, you know, to, to spiritually feed and nurture and strengthen the flock. Right? His job is the inside work. So these false watchmen, right, these shepherds, they failed on both accounts. And look at how Isaiah talks about it. First of all, they were blind watchmen. In other words, the idea there is that they were blind and unaware of the outside dangers to the flocks. In other words, because they were blind, they were worthless. Think about it, right? A blind sentry is a contradiction in terms, isn't it? So they were, quote, without knowledge, meaning that they were just simply unaware of the critical nature of the task or of the calling that they were occupying, whether they should have been there or not. 
They didn't understand the danger of the times. In fact, he compares them to silent, lazy, sleeping dogs, right? You know the kind, don't you? You've seen silent, lazy, sleeping dogs, haven't you? And the idea here is this, that they were like, they were worthless guard dogs who, who sleepily, you know, lay out in the sun and unaware of really anything going on around them. The, the kind of guard dogs that just rise from their slumber enough to see an intruder only to sort of stretch out and twitch their legs and roll over to a more comfortable sleeping position. That's the idea here. As shepherds, they had no understanding. In other words, they had no concept of the responsibility, you know, to alert his flock to threats or to feed or equip them as he should. No realization of the weight of their responsibility to take care of souls. Instead of faithfully following God, standing on the word of God, teaching and training people in righteousness, the unfaithful shepherd instead turns to his own way. He turns to his own thoughts. He turns to his own message that's according to his own wisdom. And he does it all, Isaiah says here, for his own gain. For his own gain. Right? He said earlier, the dogs have a mighty appetite. The point is this. It's not just that these unfaithful spiritual leaders were blind and clueless and lazy and ignorant and unmoored from God's word. They were that. But the reason they were all those things is because they were self-focused, they were self-indulgent, and they were self-consumed. That's the heart behind those words. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. They were revelers, right? The kind of guys that said peace, peace, where there was no peace. They were about their own selfish gain. They were living for their own fleshly lust to satisfy their selfish desires and not for the glory of God or for the good of the people. And here's the problem with that, right? As shepherds and watchmen, their job, their, their responsibility was to forego their own personal desires. It was to forego their own personal satisfaction or comfort to do so for the good of the flock and for the glory of God, right? Right? But instead, they chose to put their own way before God's ways and before God's people. They chose the desires of the flesh rather than faithfulness to God. And so for that, they would be judged. For that, they themselves, who were so concerned about devouring, they themselves would be devoured. That's the whole point of the statement. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. The idea is this symbolically and in, 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 in graphically is that while these shepherds were self-focused in feeding themselves, unknown to them, they were only fattening themselves for their own slaughter. That's the idea. Ignorance of their calling, greed, fleshly lust, self-concern, it made them worthless shepherd or worthless watchmen and shepherds and they were fit only to be consumed and their willful failure leads to devastating results look at this look at these devastating consequences of, of failed leadership Let me, i'll show you what i mean isaiah says in the first two verses of chapter 57 the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Well, what's he mean here? What's he talking about here? Well, in a nutshell, what he's getting at is that righteous men, faithful men, upright men, spiritually solid men, men of, of gravity and conviction, 
they are disappearing. They're disappearing. And no one seems to notice. No one seems to be aware. No one takes it to heart in the sense that even if they notice it's taking place, they can't seem to figure out why that is. They can't draw the lines and see that because of a lack of spiritual leadership, there's a lack of righteous men. You see that? The righteous men and the righteous women too. Like the word man here obviously is inclusive. The righteous men and the righteous women, they're dying off. They're being taken out of this evil world from the calamity of this age. It's not that they're losing. It's not that they're losing. Okay, the righteous man, the righteous woman that, that perishes, that dies, that goes to be with the Lord. It's not that they are the loser, right? That's not it at all. They, are, they experience peace and, and, and satisfaction and, and, and the presence of God, right? The issue is the spiritual community is the loser because they're not being replenished. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any righteous men or righteous women, only that their number is being reduced relative to the population. That's a really sobering thought, isn't it? Isn't it? Beloved, that's why standing on God's truth, that's why faithful spiritual leadership at every level, that's why hearing and adhering to the faithful exposition of God's word, that's why intentional discipleship and God-honoring worship and disciplined obedience and proper church discipline and purposeful parenting of our kids and grandparenting of our grandkids so that we raise up righteous men and women is not to be taken lightly. You with me? This isn't a game, man. This is spiritual life and death. And it's why Paul makes the impassioned plea. You ever wonder why he says this at the end of 1 Corinthians when he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Because that, beloved, is what it looks like to be a righteous man or a righteous woman. Remember something else too, and I think this is key to remember. This is really key to, to, to consider. You know, these false watchmen slash shepherds, they would have no place if there wasn't a market for them. You hearing me? They only exist, these guys, because of the fleshly desires of false professors. You remember, don't you? I know you will. I mean, you'll remember this text and I'll read it to you. You remember what Paul said to Timothy. He was very direct, right? In, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and starting in verse 1, he said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate. They'll gather up. They'll build, you know, hoard is the idea. For themselves, teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jude said of, of these teachers, Jude 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, remember this. False shepherds slash watchmen, they only have the power that somebody willingly gives to them. You hear me? They only have the power that somebody willingly gives to them. 
the influence that somebody allows them to have. False teachers exist because false professors clamor for them to make themselves feel good about themselves. And that's exactly the state of soul that Isaiah describes next when he talks about the madness of apostasy. In fact, I want you to see when we look at this, we're going to look at verses 3 through 10, not all together. I'm going to kind of break it up a little bit. But this is one long divine denunciation of false professors in Israel and by extension in the church today, okay? And I want you to just look with me first at verses 3 and 4. He writes there, But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? Here's the picture. Here's the picture. The picture is of God calling apostates to account before him. Calling false professors, hypocrites, to account before him, right? And the words are strong. By using, for instance, the terms sorceress and offspring of the adulterer and loose woman, God is putting the focus on a few things that we need to see. First of all, the sorceress, right? What is a sorceress? It's somebody who cavorts with unclean spirits, right? It's somebody who is under the influence of demonic forces yet thinks herself to be in control of them. Isn't that true? Right? That's what a sorceress is. I can control the, the spiritual, right? I have power over the demonic. I have power over the unclean. The reference to the adulterer, well, you know what that is. That's a reference, a description of somebody who has violated the covenant of marriage. But the picture there is of violating Vows made before the Lord. And then the reference to the loose woman or the prostitute is a reference to spiritual adultery. Okay? Oftentimes, adultery, physical adultery, was used as a picture of spiritual adultery, right, in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on here. So in essence, in essence what, what's being said here is this. You think you're accepted by God, but you're not. Your lives prove you're not children of God. You are mastered by demonic spirits and influences. You violated the covenant of God and you're not a part of it. You're spiritual adulterers. You are unfaithful to the Lord. Your life tells the tale. And then the Lord says to them, look at it again. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? The idea here is this. It's not that... It's not that the apostate's mocking God. It's that the apostate is mocking the faithful. That he laughs and holds in derision, you know, the, the faithful. They thinks he's too serious about God. He's too narrow. He's too burdened by the Lord, taking him and his word all too earnestly. And they mock the faithful for their faithfulness when in reality, the idea is being said, what's, what's being said here, the, the reality is you ought to be mocking yourself. You're the children of transgression. That's why you're wrapped up in sin. They're believing lies. In fact, in New Testament terms, the way that the Lord Jesus Christ put it to the Pharisees, right, the quintessential false professor, hypocrite, apostate, was this. He said to them in John 8, or chapter 8, verses 43 and 44, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. You mock. But you don't realize your fate. And then Isaiah describes their apostasy, again, 
using the most revolting images that are available to him. Okay? He says in verses 5 through 10, let's just read it and I'll bring a few things out. He says, You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed. And there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found a new life for your strength. And so you were not faint. The Hebrew in these verses is really difficult. But let me just try to give you the sense of this. Okay? When we read here of you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, Isaiah is talking about, he's describing the depravity, all right, of the apostates to whom he's writing in terms of the idolatry of the Chaldeans and of the Canaanites in which their unfaithful forefathers had participated, okay? Where they would go and, you know, offer these sacrifices and do these lewd things, you know, under the trees or, you know, out wherever. The idea is this. Their idolatry was connected to gross sexual immorality, to homosexuality, to ritual prostitution, to the fertility cults. It was a complete perversion of the created order. They went out there and engaged in worship, not that was uninformed, but worship that was depraved and not worship at all. And the point that we're to get here is that apostates in every age continually corrupt themselves with fleshly desires. And so they make themselves worthless. That in turn leads to them Look, slaughtering their children in the valleys and under the clefts of the rocks. It's a reference to the burning and the sacrifice of their own children, their own offspring, to Molech and other gods to somehow gain favor with those gods so that their fleshly desires would be met. Think about how absolutely corrupt you must be. How absolutely corrupt you must be to sacrifice your own children, to sacrifice your very future for your own fleshly desires. Apostates in every age care nothing for the souls of their children. When he says, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion, there your lot, you poured out a drink offering, brought a grain offering. The idea here is that they had traded the stable foundation of faith and fellowship with, with the Lord for these smooth, literally slippery stones. These stones that were worn into a certain suggestive pattern or whatever by the water or the wind or whatever that they considered to have some sort of, you know, spiritual significance. And because they threw in their lot with these slippery stones, they themselves would slip and fall. 
Apostates in every age, they trade the stable foundation for the, of the Lord for that which is slippery and shifting, right? Then, he, then we read, behind the door in the doorpost, you've set up your memorial. Deserting me, you've uncovered your bed, you've gone up to it, you've made it wide, right? All of that. And the Hebrew here is really tricky, but the idea is something like this. The picture is that the apostate puts on a face in public, but he is entirely something else in private. And let me explain. Jews, Jews were supposed to write God's law on their doorposts of their house as a sign that they were followers of the Lord, right? We read, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 18, these words. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. So here's the picture. You've got this person who has the law of God written on his doorpost, right? But then he closes the door and sets up a memorial, a statue, something like that, behind the door. On the outside, all appears to be true, but on the inside, they're exposed as apostate. Nothing about their appearance is true to the eyes of the Lord who looks on the heart and in the secret places, right? Again, in New Testament terms, it's like what the Lord Jesus Christ said, again, about the Pharisees when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Right? Apostates in every age are, not, are, are full of hypocrisy and, and lawlessness. And then we read these words. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off. You sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. What's the idea? The idea is this. The idea is, that's being presented here is the desire to be well thought of and loved by the king and the culture. That's the idea. The king represents the culture. It's this burning desire for influence and acceptance with the world, currying favor with the world, blending in with the hope of being received. In fact, the Hebrew words here, they're almost frantic. And they're written that way in order to make us realize that it's this desperate pursuit, right? You journeyed, you multiplied, you sent, you sent down, you were weary. You did all this and try to, in an attempt to try to find satisfaction, approval, apart from the Lord. And to a degree, it worked. That's the idea here. To a degree, it, it worked. To a degree, it caused them to be, you know, to have new life for their strength, right? And not be faint, although they're desperately sick of soul. Being accepted and celebrated seems to suffice for a time. But beloved, it's all illusory, isn't it? If you don't have the approval of God, see apostates in every age, they seek the approval of the world and not the approval of God. You with me? 
And then in the middle of these verses, God asks, shall I relent for these things? In other words, shall I fail to bring judgment upon you for all this? And the answer to that question is what? It's an obvious question. It's an obvious answer. What is it? No. The faithful and the apostate, they will meet starkly different ends. Louis says, dealing first with the apostate, the Lord says, Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? The Lord asks in effect, you know, what could possibly have motivated you to be unfaithful? Why did you think that was a good idea? Well, what caused you to cease fearing the Lord and turn away from him? What other gods or idols, physical or otherwise, laid hold of them to make them be unfaithful to God? What did you think would be better? And I want you to see here that the, that the sense of that, that, that phrase, you lied, is not so much that they told a lie. That's not the idea here. Rather, it's to become a liar by betraying the truth. They failed to remember God, which means they'd broken faith with him, and, and they didn't lay it to heart. They just simply had no concern at all for God. And why was that exactly? God asked them. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Is it this? Is it that you have regarded God's patience as weakness? Rather than seeing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Is it because God didn't immediately deal out instant justice upon them? Imagine if God did that. Imagine if God dealt out instant justice all the time. Nobody would be worried about overpopulation on the earth. Or any population. Right? And he says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. The idea is that God will expose the reality of their lives. He'll expose their standing before him and what their deeds deserve, but it's not going to be a pleasant experience. They're not going to be found guiltless. They're going to be exposed to his judgment. And, and when that comes, they'll cry out for rescue from the hand of the Lord. And he tells them, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Call out to them. Call out to your idols. See what they do. And then God stops speaking to the apostate and he simply makes a statement about them. He says, the wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. No matter how large the collection may be of the world's gods, you know, in the end they're of no substance in comparison to the glory and the weight and the reality and the significance of God, the God who fills heaven and earth. They're nothing. They're a vapor. They're an imagination of human minds that have rejected the truth. And as a result, the apostate who anchors himself to them will be blown away like chaff. Because there's nothing to ground them. There's nothing to hold them fast. But in contrast, God says of the faithful, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. The faithful will know the permanence of acceptance with the Lord. The faithful, those who take refuge in him, will have a secure standing, a permanent place with God. They'll possess the land. They'll have a certainty of access to the Lord's presence, certainty of his goodwill and his care and his blessing because they'll inherit the holy mountain, the eternal city of God. 
And so for that reason, the faithful can say, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Right? Here's the point of this whole text. Beloved, as the pace quickens and history dashes more and more rapidly to its end, the difference between the true and the false, the difference between those who are really God's people and those who are not, will become more and more obvious until it's finally and fully revealed on the day of judgment, right? And so when we look at, at, at this description of, of the apostates here, right? We look at it, you know, and you know, apostates corrupt themselves with fleshly desires, and apostates don't care for their souls of their children as they should. And apostates trade a stable foundation for the Lord for what's slippery. And apostates, you know, they they seek the approval of the world and not the approval of God. We can look at those and I can say in myself, I have done that. I've done every single one of those things. Right? So what's the difference between Somebody who's truly a believer and somebody who's an apostate. Here's the difference. It's one word. It starts with an R. You know what it is. What is it? It's repentance. It's repentance. It's sincere repentance. Listen, none of us are guiltless, right? None of us are innocent. You know, none of us are innocent of any of the things that these apostates did. The difference is what do you do about those things? Do you repent and turn to the Lord? Well, I've done them more than once. Do you repent and turn to the Lord? Are these sorts of temptations diminishing in your life because you are pressing into the Lord? Like That's the, the thing here. That's how we guard our souls in light of these words. In fact, we need to do as the writer of Hebrews tells us. I quoted this text on Sunday, but you've slept since then. So I'll quote it again. It's Hebrews chapter 3. I'm starting in verse 12 when he says, Take care, brothers. Brothers. I'm not talking to apostates here. I'm talking to brothers. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Right? This is a sobering text, but it's necessary. Nothing in the Word of God is unnecessary, right? And it follows in the exact perfect place, as shocking as it may be, it follows in the exact perfect place to everything that we read last week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for these words. We thank you, Father, that you have given to us your holy truth. Father, you are so good. 
You are so faithful to us. Everything that we need, every spiritually needful thing for our souls, Lord, you freely give and you do so gladly. And I praise you for that. I thank you that you are a faithful watchman and shepherd for our souls. I'm grateful, Lord God, that ultimately you are the watchman and the shepherd over every single one of your people. And in that, Lord God, we can take great comfort and great encouragement. Lord, I pray that you would raise up more righteous men and women, Father, in this congregation and in this community and in this world. I pray that you would strengthen and establish. I I pray, Father God, that, that the men and the women that are following hard after you, you will give them strength and energy, and Lord God, you'll give them fruit for their endeavor. I pray, Father God, for those young men that are being raised up in the faith. Father, they would be convinced that there is nothing more important than that God holds first sway in my heart, ultimate sway. Not first among many, first alone. God, I pray that you will be faithful to us and strengthen us and preserve us until the day that we see you face to face. We give you all honor, Lord God, all praise from the depth of our hearts, all glory, all thanksgiving. We deserve nothing. And you have given us everything. And for that we praise you. To you be all glory. To you be all honor in Christ's name. Amen.